You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. My name is Ryan McGee. I'm coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. Joining me in Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we have a science fair today. I am very excited, Ryan. I know, because we got to talk to a couple of people. You, you actually got to talk to fellow smart people on, on this podcast for this episode. Yeah, so we we found some academics who've been doing actual curling research during lockdown. So uh, we reached out to them. And so the first is Megan Balston, who's a competitive curler in Ontario. She, I guess, also joined Team Holly Nickel uh, right at the end of the last season. And she's also a PhD student at the University of Western Ontario in engineering, where she's uh, presented a conference paper on um, the scratch effects of different curling brooms, different curling brush materials. So she's our first guest today. And our second guest is Derek Leung, who is a master's student in geology at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, he's also plays for the Team Hong Kong, and he also curls competitively in the Toronto area. So we have two competitive curlers who are academics in their day jobs, and they've put together their love of curling and their love of science. So we figured we'd have a little science fair today. Yep. Uh, Jonathan, where is your academic paper on curling? I I feel like embarrassed. And then I just saw on Twitter you there's another be. academic paper by a sociologist on curling. And I feel like, and then there was a good paper on race and curling, a whole mm-hmm. dissertation. And I'm, I kind of feel like I've... Um, you know, blown it. I I chose the wrong research topic. (laughs) I I feel like I need to have our good friend, Alex Friedman, re-record our intro and get rid of the Professor of Peel moniker because obviously you have been surpassed. So what's a good political science question I could ask about curling? Um, Let's put that on Twitter. People should, when they hear this, yeah. tweet at us. Tweet at me, and I'll see if I can get funding to research it. I think yeah. the problem is I can't see the British Academy giving much money to me to study curling. Uh, you could f- study sovereignty and how it relates to Scotland being the only country that can earn points for GB toward the Olympics. Or you can study the fact that uh, the U.S. teams probably aren't going to be able to go to any other countries anytime soon to, to play some curling. That's, that's probably true, yeah. It's All probably right. not happening. All right. All right. Um, so uh, let's get into it. This, uh, we, these were two very good, very extensive interviews with both Megan and Derek. So we don't want to we don't want to banner for too long, or else this will wind up being a two hour episode, and we don't want that. Um, so let's get right into it. Uh, we were very fortunate to be joined by Megan Balsden, and Jonathan just gave her a, a really great intro, and Megan has some great insights, and uh, you know her. 
her research kind of digs in a little bit more into the the debate that we saw during Broomgate. So we hate to hate to pick at old scabs, but uh, we're going to pick at some old scabs here. Uh, but uh, some very good new research into the effects curling brooms have on the ice. So let's get into that right now with Megan Balston. I guess before we get going, um, so you're also a competitive curler too. So are, and so if I everything kind of went crazy at the end of the season there. So yeah, are, wh- who are you curling with uh, next season? If there is a next season, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're hoping it's a next, there's a next season. Um, so I'm, I was skipping last year, but now this coming year I'll be playing uh, third for Holly Duncan out of Ontario. Yeah. And so she went to, she, she skipped in the Scotties a few years back. Is that yes. correct? Yeah, exactly. With, um, uh, Steph, Stephanie LeDrew, uh, Cheryl Kerviazic and, Karen Sagel. So yeah, that was maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. Um, and so she lost the final to Rachel this past year. And, um, I was on a team that lost the final the previous year. And I think, and, and, um, we just decided to join forces because, uh, three of our players live in Toronto and the other lives in Woodstock. So it's really easy for, you know, us to be, to practice and probably going to play in a league together, which is pretty rare these days. So, um, like I said, I went to, I'm going to Western, but I, I live in Toronto now. So kind of, I can do, I go to London every, uh, like a couple times a week. So. And so you're, so you're doing a PhD at West in Western in, um, mechanical yeah. engineering. Yeah, that's right. And so and what's your project on your PhD project? Uh, so the main focus is to, the main goal is to find out basically, uh, why a curling rock curls. So, um, you know, the physics behind it, just investigating certain experiments so we can kind of, that will lend support to um, a theory and then basically make a predictive model with that theory. So um, where we can input certain parameters and, you know, essentially adjust certain things and see how that effect will have on the curl of a stone. Um, So this is assuming that I can figure out exactly the correct theory as to why a curling rock curls. But yeah, that was the idea. And then that model would, you know, essentially help, um, you know, ice makers, coaches, uh, players down the road kind of thing. And so the study that I saw, so that's Mm -hmm. on sweeping. And so uh, do you mind just explaining what the study is for for our listeners who haven't um, seen it yet? Yeah, for sure. Um, So yeah, I did a study. um, It was basically just an objective study looking at uh, measurements of the scratches that are made in the ice um, by different brew materials. Um, so I'll kind of go through the, like exactly what I did. So um, I had a competitive national level junior sweeper. Um, so our junior curler, uh, 20 years old, 250 pounds. He swept as hard as possible between pylons. And then I would place this material down right after he swept um, called vinyl polysiloxane, which is essentially a, a dental impression material. Um, and then put that on the ice right after um, and repeated this for all the different broom conditions. Um, and then basically the, the liquid hardened and then the, so it essentially made a replica, which is like a negative of what the ice surface would look like. So a pebble is raised in real life, but on in the replica, it's actually concave in the replica. Um, so then I had these replicas scanned with an optical profiler, which is essentially just a non-contact scanner measuring all the little deviations like raises, um, 
divots essentially in the sample. And then from this, I extracted the information, which was essentially measuring the depth of the scratches made by each of the broom heads. And so do you want to kind of summarize what the findings are? What, what kind of, without naming names of different manufacturers, what kinds of broom heads tend to be, I guess, scratchier, if you will? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, um, uh, yeah, um, there was like the approved fabric. Um, so I designate that as broom A1, um, along with a couple others kind of had like the lowest mean scratch depth. Um, and then there were three others plus the hair broom. And I could talk about the hair broom. Um, but yeah, had the kind of sort of in the next group. I, there were really like two that had sort of the highest mean scratches and the highest ranges. And the hair broom was one of those, um, which, you know, when this whole broom gate thing happened, um, you know, people suspected that there were a few um, broom materials that were kind of making the most scratches or the, the worst um, having the worst effect on the directional sweeping. Um, and so I think it kind of showed that that was true. And I think, you know, the hair brooms was definitely one of those, one of those, uh, broom heads essentially that were scratching the ice. That's kind of crazy to think about, right? Because, you know, mm -hmm. there was a time there where the, the, the hair brooms were really prevalent and then everyone went away from them and went to synthetic. And it turns out that maybe they should have been using the hair brooms the whole time. Right. <laughs> Exactly. I think that's what the most um, kind of weird thing about that whole broomgate season was, you know, like, yeah, hair brooms were used for so long and no one noticed these effects. But I think it's probably because people were sweeping one person on each side and they were also sweeping um, more perpendicular to this to the path of the stone um, and, you know, arguably uh, sweepers nowadays are in better shape than they were 30 years ago. <laughs> um, hate to say it, but I think, I feel like that's true. Like people are really athletic, you know, so are having a greater effect. So I think, you know, and the reason we, we saw that, you know, when the whole Broomgate thing happened and no one knew what, what to do because all of these, you know, they didn't know what fabric was doing what, and they didn't want to obviously, um, you know, side with any one manufacturer. So they're like, well, let's go with it. Um, a hair broom because then that's you know the sort of the most neutral right and so then they did that and i think that's when they found out that the hair brooms were actually doing the same kind of thing <laughs> you know what i mean and and obviously curling is an interest of yours you're a competitive curler um how long have you thought about doing this project and this experiment and kind of what was the what was the preparation that went into preparing to do this well, I mean, it's, it's, um, it was the summer before I started my PhD and, uh, there's the professor that I'm working with now, he, you know, he, he's a curler himself, a club curler. And he, he was always interested in, you know, why curling, why curling rocks curl. And he knew that there was no kind of concrete evidence, uh, one way or another. And we started chatting about it. And then I never really thought I was going to do my PhD, but being a curler and knowing that this is one of those questions that, hasn't been answered entirely. Um, that really just made me, you know, interested in pursuing it. Um, and then with the, the broom, the sweeping study specifically, um, when this whole, uh, controversy came about, it definitely made me, you know, think about how I could, how I could help, you know, the community in, in terms of like 
what could I look at that is unique and provide some sort of aid in, in what exactly is happening at the A surface? What are the, so I'm kind of familiar with the two kind of big theories about sweeping and curling. And one's the heat theory, the brush heats up the ice and that somehow gets the stone to not curl as much. And then the other, basically by kind of making it go further, I guess, is the theory I've been explaining. And the other one is the scratch one, which I think arose during Broomgate, which is that the scratching can kind of direct the stone to, to mm-hmm. go in certain certain places. So, but you actually mentioned four theories in your paper. So I'm wondering if you can, since you're like the world leading expert on this topic, what are the four <laughs> four theories of how a curling stone curls? I don't know if I call myself an expert at all, but um, I can definitely con- uh, yeah comment on those theories. Um, so yeah, the thin uh, layer model is basically a theory that says that the the leading edge of the stone, so you know, the edge of the front of the stone as it travels down the ice is basically melting the ice and creates this really thin uh, film of water that kind of like lasts long enough, doesn't freeze right away, so that the trailing part of the rock um, um, encounters this film. And then basically this creates like an asymmetry between the back and the front, which makes the rock curl. Um, the snowplow model, and the uh, what I said, what I called in the paper, the evaporation abrasion model, are pretty similar in the idea that the front half of the stone, in this instead of creating the thin layer of water, um, essentially um, has a, an abrasive effect, um, creating like ice chips, and then that will either like adhere to the back of the stone um, again either adhering to it or basically encountering the back of the stone and then again, causing an asymmetry between the front and the back, which is causing it to curl. Um, And then there's the scratch guiding theory, which you talked about. So that theory, when it comes to how curls, how curls generated um, without sweeping is basically saying that uh, the leading edge of the, of the stone will create scratches in the ice that will then guide the trailing half of the stone um, because essentially it's saying that they will follow those scratches. Um, So those are essentially the four uh, theories. Well, the four kind of main theories There are a couple other theories that are not as kind of prevalent in the literature, but um, honestly, like just commenting, if if you want me to comment on the theories themselves, um, I don't think any one of them explains the whole story. Um, I think the thin layer and the snowplow models seem a little far-fetched in the sense that, you know, we don't notice any kind of water on the ice at all. Again, they, they're saying this is a thin film. So, you know, it's possible that it's there and we are not seeing it or feeling it, um, but it's hard to prove. Um, and then with the snowplow model, I mean, you know, like if, if there's frosty conditions and sometimes you can you know, see like kind of a snow buildup on the bottom of the stone. That that definitely has happened, but it definitely doesn't happen or you don't notice it um, when you talk about like arena conditions. Um, And we know the rocks will curl in an arena ice. So um, I would say like my research or the research that was published somewhat supports um, the scratch guiding theory um, in the sense that we see that rocks do cause scratches in the ice because that was part of the measurements that I took. It wasn't just the broom conditions, but it was also um, 
regular just rocks uh, traveling down the ice. And so I don't know, although I'm not really sure, I don't know if I believe that the rock is hitting its own scratches. Um, because if you look at like exactly how much the rock is um, in contact with the ice, so you only have like obviously the thin running band at the bottom, but the ice is also pebbled, but also those pebbles are also not all the same height. So I've done like a pressure analysis and you can tell that it's actually only like 5% of the actual area of the running surface that contacts the ice. So it's really hard for me to believe that, you know, the scratches would like that those, that essentially the running band would hit uh, the same pebble, if that makes sense. Like the scratches Mm. that were made from the front half of the rock, you know, would be exactly encountered by asperities on the back half of the rock. Like it, because there's just such little contact contact area, if that makes sense. I don't know if I'm explaining yeah. this well. <laughs> no, no, it makes sense. So you're say, you're saying that because the the running surface actually only touches a very little bit, it's mm-hmm. unlikely that the it's like a very small probability they would hit the exact same spot. Yeah, that's, the front and back side. That's my thought. Yeah. Yeah. What about so this just came in my head? So this is I could be totally bonkers here, but since one of the things that ice makers do is basically scratch up the surface of the stone to mm-hmm. get more curl in it, is that is that kind of supported by the scratch theory at all? Or? Yeah, exactly. So we know that the that the rocks are making like are creating scratches in the ice by traveling down the ice, but um, and so you know, yes, it, it would make sense that if the rock is sharper, that it would make larger scratches or, um, you know, have a, a, like there would be more, you would think that there would be, yeah, like deeper scratches essentially, um, in the ice. So, I mean, we, I mean, we know that that, that is true. So we know that the running surface, like the roughness of the running surface has a huge effect on curl. And that is, you know, we all know that, but it's a matter of figuring out exactly, you know, why that's true and like the actual physics and dynamics behind it. So if the, if, if touching up the stones, which I mean, a lot of times in big tournaments, they'll do that midweek. If, if touching up the stones affects the curl of the rock that much, does that mean that if stones have just been touched up, does that mean that directional sweeping would have a greater effect or less of an effect on Kind of trying to control the rock's curl um, to the extent that you can and control the rock's curl with sweeping? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, on one hand, I would think that, you know, um, the rocks are going to curl more. And so like the frictions increased, obviously. So it's like they, there's, there's, there might be more momentum from the rock itself. And so I would think it would be less affected, but I don't, there's no, like, there's no research to support either side. I don't think, um, I mean, I bet the elite of the elite would definitely be able to comment on that. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. So the other thing your paper mentioned, and it's, is that the sweeping technique, um, matters right so i actually like so if i got the got it correct the way you described it is that if you're sweeping with the curl from the center of the stone out that'll make the stone curl more and if you're sweeping from the center against the curl that'll hold it straight so is that is that correct you think in terms of 
like modern sweeping theory? Yeah, I, I think like when, well, there's, okay. So there's, I mean, you see the elite sweeping in more of a, to keep the rock straight. It, they're almost sweeping, um, you know, kind of behind the stone and to, and keeping it like the stroke almost parallel to the, the path of the stone. Um, yeah. but for the purposes of my research, we just, we did more of a, um, more of it on an angle. Um, I want to say that, you know, since this, uh, the controversy came into play in the last four years, people are, have kind of moved towards, uh, sweeping more parallel to the path of the stone. And so, um, I think, you know, that might be interesting to look at, but we, we looked at specifically, I mean, we weren't looking at exactly the effect of the scratches on the path of the stone. We were looking at just, you know, would this material make scratches? And so we did it in such a way that it was, you know, at kind of a 45 degree angle to the, um, the, what would be the path of the stone. So we swept on the center line and at 45 degree angle. So we would kind of know, um, if we did it, you know, with the direction down the sheet, then you might not, not know exactly, you know, which one is a sort of, cause you can actually see like the nipped scratches in the replica as well. So we wanted to make mm. sure that it was distinctly in a different direction than that. Okay. Yes. The nip scratches from, from the nipper. So some of the, pebble, oh, okay. some of the pebbles that were nipped, um, you know, didn't wouldn't necessarily be touched by the broom or whatever or, or caught and so it, yeah like i said that there's some well there's some limitations to the study but yeah so if the nipper goes one direction you want to make sure that you're sweeping for this particular study sweeping at an, an angle so that you're not confusing which scratches which hmm. if yeah. i'm reading the paper correctly and the the caveat there is i am far and away the least educated person on this episode of this podcast. Um, but if I'm reading it correctly, basically you guys are saying that you believe that this only proves that different broom materials do create varying scratch depths on the ice and that it could contribute to the theory of how directional sweeping works. Um, kind of what would need to be done to scientifically prove the effect of directional sweeping? So yeah, we've actually been... Um yeah, I've been talking um, with this uh, about this with a couple of researchers, and basically, what you'd have to do is um, you'd have to do a very a comprehensive study of just okay throwing. You'd have to know exactly first of all, um, you know, throw a bunch of control stones with no sweeping, and find out what are the effects with just not touching the stone at all, um, but also making sure that you know, the rocks are up to speed. So, you know, at the beginning of the game, obviously you throw a couple stones or a bit slower, but then once you throw a few, you know, it's up to speed. So, I mean, that's also true, you know, when you're doing research. So you have to throw a couple, make sure that the rocks are consistent now, you know, get to a point where they're going to the same space uh, or same spot in the ice. Um, and then you would, uh, you know, throw in the different conditions of sweeping, materials but then it would be ideal if you could do both um this kind of scratch measuring mechanism alongside um actually measuring the path of the stone so you know getting video cameras out and following the rock seeing you know where the breakpoint um is to start and then 
where that breakpoint changes with the different room conditions. Um, you know, where does it end up? All those things. So there's just, there's so many factors. Um, you know, anyone who curls knows that there's just so many things that can affect a rock. So, you know, that if you throw more rotation, that the rock is straighter. Um, and so, you know, those, all those little things can affect it. So by, you know, you can say, oh, I threw it, you know, the same weight, but, oh, I threw a bit more rotation. Well, you know, that rocks can be straighter. So you have to, you know, take that into account when you're doing this, that kind of research. And so it's, it's quite uh, a lengthy process and uh, it takes, takes some time, like it, and it'll take some, you know, different, a lot of different equipment and everything. So that would be, you know, if you want to confirm directional sweeping, and I think they, they, for the most part, did this at the sweeping summit, but um, the public, uh, summary that we received, I remember that everyone could see, um, didn't really show a control stone. Um, so that from like a research perspective, obviously like players might not care that that wasn't involved, but from a research perspective, that's important to know like where the rock would end up if no sweeping was had at all. So just like a more in-depth study of that. In order to really get all the data that you need, you would almost have to have, I, I mean, use this, basically you, you kind of talked about it being like dental mold. You would almost have to have that for an entire curling sheet, right? And then what you guys sent yours off to, I, th I think I read that you sent it off to Spain to be, um, to be looked at and to do that for an entire curling sheet sounds like it's not really possible, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. No, um, the, the, we didn't send it to Spain. It was a, it was a, a local lab, but um, I think the original process was mimicked from a research group in Sweden. So maybe that's where the country is coming in. But um, yeah, like and the problem with this dental impression material too, it takes like two hours to set. So, you know, as soon as you, if you were to throw, put it down in a path that you, you know, that, that the rock traveled in, you know, you wouldn't be able to use that path again. Do you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. it's not ideal when it comes to, you know, comparing it to, to like the, the um, resultant path. But what you could do is take one sheet and, and do, um, you know, the replicas. So you, you know that the ice conditions are the same in terms of like the humidity and the temperature of the ice and all that. So in terms of the scratches and how they would, you know, present themselves would be the same on one sheet versus another. So you could do it. One sheet was just replicas and one sheet was, you know, the analysis of the path itself. So like for me, Broomgate was like, I mean, I've, I'm in my forties and when Broomgate broke, cause I've been curling since I was 10. I was mm -hmm. like the first, when it first broke, I was like, no way. I was just like, that's garbage. Right. <laughs> and then yeah. like, as the season went on, it's like, as like one of my friends said, I've seen things now. Right. And then once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. I'd say so much so that now I go back and watch like old curling games on YouTube and like the best curlers in the world in the eighties and nineties were sweeping like completely wrong. Like they're doing, they're basically the sweeping techniques they're doing would probably make the stone curl more. Right. So what, like, what don't we know now? Like what's the next broom gate? Like what's the, what's the stuff that we don't know about curling that you want to kind of find out. And then also um, what's the next thing you think is going to catch us completely off guard when it comes to sweeping and curling? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I think, I mean, I think it, I think Broomgate definitely threw everyone for a loop. Um, you know, just, it was just so, it was very surprising. Um, and, you know, we have no idea 
if anyone knew this in advance of making, you know, brooms or anything. And then it was just, yeah, it was just a wild, a wild season all, all around. Um, but I think maybe the reason we didn't see it before um, was, you know, because the sweeping technique chain like changed so much. Like we were sweeping, we always had two sweepers, right? So there was never just one sweeper. And because we always thought that sweeping was heating up the ice, you know, to make the rock go further and to, to keep it straighter, um, then the two sweepers made, made complete sense for, for that effect, right? And then I think with the new material that came out um, and, and, you know, with the professional curlers these days having, you know, essentially being professional and having time to kind of, to notice like that they would notice, Oh, wow. If I, if, if, um, you know, I, I want to say someone figured it out because they were sweeping with three or, or playing with three players. I can't remember exactly how it all came about, but um, you know, I think it's just um, having more time to practice. Like they practice so much and they, they play so much that, they were probably just like, wait, something's up here, you know? Um, and so I think just the change in the game um, and then the change in the the brooms and everything, like the, the new foam, like if you think about like the brownies back in the day, you know, that foam was so squishy and everything, right? Like, I don't know if, I don't know if that material would have scratched the ace because of the foam density was totally different. So I think there's a bunch of factors that kind of contributed to the, the Broomgate um, and this the, the development of the sport. Um, I know, I mean, I definitely think that there's still so much we could know from a scientific perspective. Like, um, we know that the surface is being heated. We do, but how much we don't know. And then with this new approved fabric, it, we don't know that. We haven't looked into that specifically. Um, but like I said earlier, we, we need a study that shows exactly what the effects are um, from sweeping in terms of like the actual distance, the amount of curl, we need a whole bunch of data points to evaluate this, but then also looking at one sweeper versus two and what's actually happening, you know, um, when, when you sweep directionally, um, with one, one sweeper versus two, and then with the different weight scenarios, cause I know there's some definitely a lot of talk about, you know, at what weight it, it, it does directional sweeping have the, like, the greatest effect and, at what point does it have no effect? Like, I know there's, um, there's definitely some, like some discussions there. Um, and I think everyone does kind of different things. Right. And then, um, I know that some research can be done into, I know they're talking about like fabric color. So if you read that, the, uh, summary from NRC from the sweeping summit, um, you know, they mentioned briefly that, that color fabric color had an effect on the output of the stone, but they didn't really elaborate on it. So I guess the question is, you know, is that really true? I don't think any research has actually been done on that and quantify the differences. So I feel like there's a lot of questions that could still be answered, um, but it's just, you know, curling's not, doesn't have a ton of money in it. So there's not a lot of funded research out there as far, well, as, far as I know. <laughs> um, I don't know if I answered your entire question there. Yeah, no. I mean, okay. so like one of the theories I've heard, and you can tell me, you can uh, maybe it's like a team getting a team secrets, but one of the theories I've heard is that you are, if you're trying to hold the stone straight, you sweep it early. And if you're trying to make it curl, you've got to hit it late. So you're kind of catching the curl and pulling it out. But yeah. I, again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's just folk 
folk knowledge now, if there's any kind of evidence or science for it? Um, as far as I know, there's no, there is no specific science for it. Um, but I mean, if you think about, you know, like I said, professional curlers or elite, the elite, like they're, they're practicing every day um, and they, they can practice these specific things and throw so many stones to try and, you know, try out these different scenarios. So, but you still have, you know, teams doing different things. So, which I just shows you that, you know, there is no specific science out there. Um, and so people are doing what they, they believe, um, you know, makes the most sense. And, and it's not to say that, you know, they can't feel confident about it because they, they throw so many stones and they, you know, they see it with their eyes and, you know, but it's, yeah, like there's not any research that really supports what you're saying, but I mean, I would, I think it makes sense like to keep a rock straight, you know, if, if there is still heat being produced, um, at the, at the level, of, uh, at the ice level, then sweeping it early would make sense because you're essentially, um, keeping that stone straighter if you, if you are in, in fact, uh, decreasing the friction. So you're delaying that break point, which is, keeping the rock straighter. So sweeping early for, for line, I think makes, makes sense. And I would say, I would say most people agree with that. Um, from like a, an anecdotal thing, they believe that that's true when, when they do it themselves. Um, and then, yeah, like I think sweeping late to, to, you know, to make, make it curl or to drag a stone. I think again, from just purely creating heat perspective, that makes sense too, because you're, I mean, if you're sweeping late, either way, you're, you're, you're heating the, the surface of the stone and you're trying to drag it. So it's going to curl more if it has longer to travel, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think both those theories are correct, but there's not any real specific science. Uh, definitely no scientific papers out there that are proving it. I know you had a younger competitive curler um, use the different broom heads that you tested uh, to compare mm -hmm. them. Was there any thought to uh, also having just some average Joe curler make a second set of scratches so you could compare them? Yeah, that would be um, definitely interesting. Um, because I don't know about uh, where you guys are, but um, club curling in, uh, well, that from what I've seen, they allow, well, sorry, I won't say all clubs, but a lot of the clubs still allow any of those broom heads. And so, you know, you still have people um, at the club level uh, attempting to directional sweep and, you know, so it would be interesting to see, you know, what the differences um, would be. And, you know, like, yeah, a various different people too. So, you know, I had a, a six foot one, 250 pound male, you know, but, you know, what if I had like someone like my size, five foot two, you know, uh, 120 pounds, like, it's like, you know, that that also might have a different effect. So those kinds of things would be interesting to, to compare. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a once a week curler. And at one point, I had a skip trying to get me direct to directionally sweep. And I'm just like, there's no way that <laughs> I'm going to be able to do what you think this is going to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know, right? Like, yep. like, I, I guess, I don't know if you've, if you've tried it, but um, you know, potentially you may have had an effect. So. Yeah. Well, we, it's, I think it's more of um, just having never practiced doing that 
because there's really no need to when you curl in Richmond, Virginia on hockey ice with a ton of humidity. Um, (laughs) So I I think like maybe, maybe if I practiced it, I might be able to accomplish that, but uh, not, not so much the way I am now. Although I will say uh, I do, I use the, the broom, uh, one of the brooms that's manufactured that has the little plastic insert. And I will say that one of the things as a club curler that that really does actually help with is frost. And our, our ice is extremely frosty and you just see that stuff fly away from in front of the stone when you're, um, when you're using one of those, uh, broom heads. Gotcha. Um, yeah, my study didn't use that insert, but, uh, I know, um, you know, yeah, I, I've heard that it it does have a a large effect. So, and yeah, I mean, it's good that it can be useful for scenarios where there's frost because that, I mean, I've heard that, um, hair brooms as well are really good for frost. Yeah, I think they are too. Yeah, that was, that was the common, I played out in BC for a while and it was very frosty there because it's always, um, it's humid, right? Because it's always Mm -hmm. raining. Yeah, and the, the folk wisdom there amongst like you know, like you know like competitive league, not like slam league level, but like competitive league was use use at least one hair broom, and you definitely would pick up a lot of frost in a in a game for sure game yeah. there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you have any other questions, Ryan? Um, I guess just really, what's next for you academically? I know that you you're still working. I guess you're still working toward your PhD. Do you have any other? Um, any other studies like this planned? Um, so I've done most of my data collection. Um, so I've done some stuff on uh, rotation and how that affects like the outcome of stone and uh, done some other research to, to, as part of my PhD. So I'm hoping to finish um, to submit by the end of the summer uh, and defend in the fall. So that's the goal. Um, and then from there, so yeah, like I've done all my, experiments that I'm planning on doing. Um, and then after that, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So there's, um, looking into various options. Okay, cool. Uh, I don't have any other, well, I got, I got one more question. This has been, um, so Brad Thiessen, I've noticed now does this weird backward sweeping, which I, I assume is to try to sweep on the other side to get the the straight or the curl going. Is that the theory behind that? Do you know, or is that just, I honestly don't know. Um, I've seen this. Um, I'm thinking what he's trying to do is so there's re- there there was some research to suggest that uh, that you're well no there's been a bunch of stuff done um, by a uh, couple of people that in, uh, created the smart broom um, out of uh, Dalhousie so Glenn Pauly um, and John Newhook um, but basically your push stroke is much. Uh, stronger than your pull stroke um, when it comes to sweeping. And so I think what he's trying to do is just, um, yeah, have an effect because he knows his push stroke is harder than his, his pull stroke. Um, hmm. and, and then sweep in that direction. I'm honestly not really sure. <laughs> um, I've hmm. seen it a couple times and I was a bit surprised. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I don't really know what the goal yeah. of that is, but I imagine it, it's some kind of directional effect that he's hoping to have, I believe. Yeah, it was interesting. I was, I was, when I saw, I guess it was last year he's doing in the briar and I was like, oh, that might be the next, it was kind of like when team Gushu came out and they were like just using one sweeper mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and no well, one really was, knew why. And that I was, was like, the beginning of the broom gate basically. I think, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
No, I, I, I was confused too. Um, and it, it, I mean, it looks hard. Like he is, was really huffing and puffing like afterwards. And I was like, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll go as far as, you know, uh, people sweeping on the same side. I mean, um, provided we go, we are able to have two sweepers again, um, post COVID, but, um, yeah, definitely like maybe we'll go back to, yeah, two sweepers on the same side. You never know. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. All right. I think that's, that's it for us. Um, so thanks, thanks a lot. We've learned a lot. Uh, anything else you want to add Ryan or? Uh, no, uh, Megan, do you have anything that, that we haven't asked that you want to talk about or anything you want to add? Um, I don't think so. Um, just reading like what I kind of made some notes with, with the questions that Jonathan sent me. So I'm just making sure I didn't miss something. Uh, no, I think I pretty much said everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the main... Another thing I just wanted to mention is like, yeah, this doesn't, the re, the, the study that was published, um, you know, it doesn't tell you the whole story. So it, it gives you the scratch depths, but it doesn't really give you the effect of, you know, it doesn't show you the effect that these scratches have on the path of the stone. And I think that's really like the next thing that we need to do is figure out, you know, exactly. So, so we can kind of say, okay, uh, a broom that creates a depth of, a scratch of, you know, call it whatever, four microns results in, you know, directional sweeping effect of whatever, however many centimeters or something like that. So it'd be nice to like have that kind of cause and effect, um, you know, so we know more about it. But um, yeah, I think that's like, just to say that like, yeah, the research itself is not, does not say everything. There's always more that can be done, you know. All right, Jonathan, what was your main takeaway from that? I know we, we wound up talking a little bit more about, about Broomgate, but, um, you know, some, some hard academic evidence that a lot of what, a lot of what we think happens, um, some academic evidence now that that's actually what happens, especially with hair brooms of all things. Yeah. And that's, I think that's interesting. So part of what I noticed is how careful Megan is to say what the, what the evidence says and doesn't say. And having spent a lot of time in both universities and curling clubs, curlers are kind of quite good at developing theories, but um, often don't have much evidence for those theories. So it's good to actually have a study that's publicly available that anyone can read and see that shows um, the scratchy effects of different brush heads. But as Megan said, there's still a lot more research that needs to be done about exactly how the scratching of the brush heads interacts with the ice and how that interacts with the curling stone. So there's actually a lot more that we need to learn, I'd say. And that partly kind of feeds into basic science, but I think also from a curling perspective, uh, it might feed into different sweeping techniques and different perhaps even kind of ways we approach uh, approach brushing overall. But it's 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 good research because it's, it's the base of the pyramid that we've kind of been missing, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there have been, she mentioned a few of the other studies in the past. There have been studies that have looked at what makes curling stones curl. Um, and there certainly was the studies done by the National Research Council in Canada at the time of Broomgate, the so-called sweeping summit, where they selected the, the yellow fabric as the kind of approved competition fabric. 
but not all of the data from that was released. Uh, I think partly because some of that was proprietary by the different companies. Uh, and so, you know, one of the kind of key criteria for actual academic science is that um, all your data is supposed to be publicly available so that other experts can kind of check it over and make sure that your findings are valid. So to have academics doing the research, putting in the public domain and kind of building a nice baseline. So Megan or some other researchers in the future could come along and perhaps expand our knowledge. And, and you know, I think one of the things that Broomgate taught me is that we don't know a lot of things about curling. Like a lot of, you know, most curlers were kind of thought that sweeping did one thing and it turns out it does a whole bunch of things we didn't really realize until people started messing around with the scratchier brooms. And um, I guess, you know, the next set of questions is perhaps what's the best possible techniques then for getting different results or different effects with brushing and with the curling stones. All right. So we, We've, we've got one piece of the puzzle with the effect that, that brooms have on the ice. Now, what about the effects that rocks have on each other? And that's why, you know, we have another uh, researcher, um, Derek Leung, as you talked about, Jonathan. What, what can we learn from what he's about to talk about? All right. So first of all, Derek's kind of posted some stuff on YouTube and on Twitter. And that's what kind of drew my attention to it, where he's videotaped, videoed in kind of very slow motion with high-speed cameras curling stones um, smashing into each other. Yeah. So the videos are cool, first of all. So, you know, it's the kind of case of science being fun. But he's using this to study the geology of curling stones, right? And so curling stones tend to only come from a couple of places on Earth. And again, it's a question of the tradition says one thing, that that's where curling stones have to come from. But we don't really know why they come from there or, you know, why that's the best kind of granite, what the possible effects are. There's a lot of things we just don't know about curling stones either. So Derek's research is trying to get, get kind of at the heart of, first of all, what make, what, why does it about that particular granite, the Elsa Craig and the Treffer granite that we use in most of our curling stones that makes them good for curling? And then what's the impact of curling stones smashing into each other all the time over time? So again, it's a question that, you know, we have a lot of what I would call folk knowledge, like just kind of passed down knowledge from the different kind of curling clubs and ice makers over time. But we don't have much kind of peer reviewed science that looks at the actual evidence. So let's turn over to Derek here. Okay, so we're joined today by Derek Leung, uh, who is currently doing his master's in geology at the University of Edinburgh, and he's working on the geology of curling stones. So welcome to the podcast, Derek. It's great to be here. Thanks. And so by your accent, it's obvious you're, you don't have a Scottish accent. So uh, a little bit of, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, both kind of personally and in the curling world? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Canada. Um, and from really from primary school on, I've been interested in minerals and curling. And one thing that's really great about geology as a science is that it's very integrative. So it's all about um, putting connections together. So um, I did my undergrad at Laurentian University in, in Canada. And when it came to doing my undergraduate thesis, well, curling and geology, two of my passions, putting them together, that's how I ended up doing uh, this project. Um, in terms of curling, um, I've also had the opportunity to uh, play with Team Hong Kong at the um, sort of international level. And um, sort of on the side, I've also been an ice tech. So I've worked in ice tech at um, 
my home club, my, my first club, uh, Leaside Curling Club in Toronto. And also, uh, I'm also a uh, com- competition development coach as well. Mm-hmm. How did you first? Uh, how did you first get started into curling? Let's start with that. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I had a friend, uh, a really good friend, who uh, curled even longer than I did, and he curled at Avonlea Curling Club. So it was a one of the old sixteen cheater clubs, so very very large. Uh, and really, it was because of him that I, I started. And he he's become like a lifelong teammate for me. So really, really great friend. And so your master's projects on um, curling stones from a geological perspective. So what's your project trying to do? What are you trying to discover through this project? Right. So um, sort of going back to that background of uh, this idea of doing, looking, combining geology and curling. Uh, whenever I was curling, I would always sort of think about what are curling stones? Why do they only come from two places in the world? And so. Uh, when I was uh, planning my undergraduate thesis, I really looked at what has been done before. And there's really only two studies that have been looked at in terms of curling stones. So the first is uh, from 1890, which is quite a while ago. Um, but this was really the first and only pa- um, paper that looked at the mineralogy and the textures of different curling stone types. Now, a lot of those curling stone types are no longer used today. Um, only one of them or two of them, I guess, from Elsa Craig um, were documented in Elsa, in in this uh, paper from 1890. The other paper is from 1951, and they did some density and toughness testing, but that test toughness testing is uh, quite outdated, so it's no longer used. And so uh, we know that the rocks have changed over time, and even how we make rocks have also changed slightly. And even our knowledge of the rocks has changed. So really, the the idea with my undergraduate thesis at Laurentian University, um, supervised by my supervisor, uh, Professor Andy McDonald, was really to relook at curling stones um, from like uh, 21st century eyes and really develop some sort of idea of what they are so that we could do more work on them. And uh, really, in order to do more work, we we really, really need to know what are these rocks, what's inside them. So, what are the mineral? What's the mineralogy? Uh, what what's the textures of these rocks? And when I was finishing up my undergraduate thesis, uh, I got into contact with um, a few um, researchers at the University of Edinburgh. So, Dr. Florian Fusses and Dr. Ian Butler, who are now my supervisors, uh, sort of just by accident. And I found out that they're actually using curling stone material from Elsa Craig uh, to understand how faults and fractures form in rocks. Uh, So this is part of their larger project uh, called the Understanding Catastrophic Failure Project. So we got talking and then we developed this project basically on linking curling stone impacts to um, how rocks or how faults develop in in, in rocks. So really, the, the goal of my project is to understand how curling stones build up damage. Um, and this is like using curling as a case study for rock mechanics. So um, again, sort of the applications in other, other fields. And I also want to know a bit more about how those minerals and, uh, and those rock textures that I looked at uh, from my undergraduate thesis, how they influence this, this damage progression. And 
we do know that uh, the striking bands of rocks, so the sides where the, the stones hit each other, um, they also have these very distinct um, crescent-shaped cracks that develop over time. And so I want to understand more about why they form and why they're very distinctly crescent-shaped. So can we uh, start like by talking a little bit about the different kinds of granite used in curling stones? Because I think for most curlers, they just go to the club and they grab their stone that's numbered for their position and, and chuck it. But there actually are several different kinds of granite uh, used in different kind of curling stones. So can you just explain what the different kinds of granite are? Yeah, that's right. So curling stones, uh, most curling stones only come from two places in the world. There's Elsa Craig, which is in the Firth of Clyde of Scotland. Um, and Elsa Craig produces two curling stone types. There's the Elsa Craig Blue Hone and the Elsa Craig Common Green. And then uh, the second locality for curling stones is Trevor, uh, and that's in the Llyn Peninsula of North Wales. And uh, there are two curling stone types that are produced. There's the Blue Trevor and the Red Trevor. So what what is it? What is it that makes granite so special and makes it, um, you know, makes it good for, for, for curling rocks? I imagine that, you know, the, the sport was invented in Scotland and they had this particular type of granite nearby in Scotland. But um, what is it about granite that makes it, that makes it good for sliding down curling ice? And in fact, have we, have we been doing this wrong? Are there other types of rocks that maybe, maybe curling should have been using instead of granite? So actually, they I think in Canada they used to use irons as well, mm-hmm. but um, I don't remember. Well, they they were quite weird. <laughs> That's all I remember. Um, so the nice thing about granites is that uh, they tend to be quite um, homo- homogeneous in the sense that like you can get very large granite bodies um, that are similar in different places. Uh, whereas other rocks like metamorphic rocks tend to have differences depending on where you are um, geologically in that that set of rocks. Um, And then sedimentary rocks, um, they usually have a layering to them. And this layering means that the properties won't be the same depending on the orientation of the stones. Um, And so that's why most likely these granite-like rocks are, are used for curling stones. So, uh, Ryan and I, we had a friend at the Oklahoma Curling Club named Ron Conlon, who was also a geologist, and he was adamant that there's nothing special about Elsa Craig granite. He he thought that actually you could probably find granite with similar features um, anywhere in the world. Um, so, I guess, first of all, is that true? And, I mean, the, the only thing that kind of made me think that maybe he had a point was it seems pretty coincidental that the only two places on the planet uh, you could get the stones, the granite you needed for curling stones, happened to be really close to where the game was invented. So does your research kind of point to the fact that we might be able to get granite from other locations, or is there something unique about this part of the world geologically that made this kind of granite possible? Right. So I think one of the reasons why the rocks from Elsa Craig and Trevor are used um, is because they're tried and tested, so we know based on the the length of time that they've been used that they're they're good for curling stones or um, sort of empirically they're they're suitable, right? So there's sort of the standardization of curling stones. So Alsa Craig rocks have been used prior to the 1830s, whereas the Trevor rocks are a bit newer. Um, they've started around the 1940s. Uh, some reports suggest that it's because of coring problems at Alsa Craig that actually uh, resulted in the rocks from Trevor being used. Um, when I looked at the rocks in my 
undergraduate degree. I think for a lot of geologists, it's it's sort of that thinking that oh yeah, these are rocks. Like you find rocks everywhere. In fact, you find granite-like rocks all over the world, right? So certainly, it was. It seems like you could find them anywhere. Now the thing is, when we look at history, uh, we do see alternate alternative rock types that have been uh, used. For example. In the 1960s, um, which was just after the war, there was a boom in curling clubs in Western Canada. And so that's when they were actually looking for different rock types. So uh, the paper from 1951, when they were doing density and toughness testing, they were also actually looking at potential other rock types in Canada that could be used for curling stones. So they tested like, I think, maybe 30 rock types, mostly from um, the east of Canada. Uh, so certainly that idea, can we find curling stones elsewhere, is is definitely um, valid. Now, when I looked at my baseline, um, what I noticed was that these rocks, of course, the granite-like rocks, they tend to be fine in medium grain, so they're a little bit more smaller in terms of the, the, the minerals, the grains of the minerals that make up the rock. Uh, they tend to be young, uh, which is important because that means that they haven't been subjected to a lot of stresses. Right? And those stresses can cause fractures. Now, these are sort of general properties to look for. Um, but they don't specifically say, oh, this rock type is better for others. So what I think um, is the case is that there are certain characteristics that make these rocks generally better than other rocks. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you can't find another rock that has these, um, these properties, right? Now, I think that the harder thing would be uh, for a company who's actually looking for um, new curling stones. Um, there's a few sort of big parts to the investment of how you would do that. I think the first part is the trust, right? So we know that these stones from Elsa Craig and Trevor have been used for a long time. So we know that they work, right? So how would you be able to convince um, the curling community that your stones are suitable for, for curling stones? And then you have to do physical properties testing. So you need to know what to test for uh, in order to know whether or not your curling stones are, or your, your rocks are suitable for curling stones. And then the last thing, of course, is trialing, right? So curling stones can last 40 years or even more than that. Um, so what happens if you sell a bunch of curling stones and you find out that maybe five years down the road they start chipping, which has actually happened, what happened in um, this one quarry in the 1960s. Um, so there was a quarry in River Valley, which is in northern Ontario, and they operated from uh, the early 1960s to the late 1960s. Um, and there's n it's documented, but we don't exactly know why they stopped. But one of the suggestions was because of that, the premature chipping of the stones. So, sort of in short, there certainly could be other curling stone types that, um, or alternative sources to curling stones. So. I guess when we think about curling stones, the two things that that um, kind of matter from a curling perspective is the running surface, right? The part of the stone that slides on the ice and the striking band, which is that part of the stone that smashes into the other stone. So an ice maker once told me that Blue Hone from the Elsa Craig's the best running surface, but is, he thought was too soft of a striking band. So he thought that the striking bands didn't last that long on Blue Hone. So does your research back that up? Right, so when we look at running surface, surfaces versus striking bands, uh, ultimately they have very different functions, as you say. Uh, the running surface tends to have to um, resist abrasion or wear, whereas the striking band um, has to resist those impacts. 
So Elsa Craig, the, the blue hone, isn't necessarily softer, but what we see is that um, it actually develops these crescent-shaped fractures. And those, the reason, when we see those fractures, those are sort of the reason why Elsa Craig blue hone is no longer used for striking bands of new stones. Uh, but we actually see that these fractures are present in other rock types as well. Um, now, the problem is that um, although, um, at least on a first um, viewpoint, we see that these Alsacraic blue hone stones tend to have more of those crescent-shaped fractures, one of the problems is that we can't actually compare this damage on a scientific level based on our observations because we don't know how long each stone was used or maintained. Um, so that's certainly something that we can work on later and try to constrain in terms of whether or not um, Elsa Craig Blue Hone really does um, develop these crescent-shaped fractures more than others. In terms of the running surfaces, um, I actually, uh, at Leaside Curling Club, we got some of the prints of the running surfaces of the old stones. They just got new stones uh, last season. And the, the cool thing about the, the rocks at Leaside Curling Club is that they're actually... Um, so one side is inserted. So one running surface is Blue Trevor and the other's running surface is Elsa Craig Blue Hone. So we we're actually able to do some um, very preliminary comparisons of the different um, uh, things that happen in the, the running surface. So one big problem of the running surface is pitting, right? So when larger grains tend to get plucked from the running surface. Now, uh, what we saw in the Elsa Craig Blue Hone stones is that uh, generally, the, the pits, um, they look like these larger grains. So Elsa Craig Blue Hone has a few larger grains, but most of them are quite small. And those larger grains seems to be, seem to be plucking out. Now, again, like there are variations between the Elsa Craig Blue Hone and Blue Trevor. Um, so the samples that we saw for Blue Trevor, they ranged from being very, having very little pitting to very, a lot of pitting. And Again, one of the problems is that we can't compare between these rock types because we don't really know how long they've been used. Um, and certainly we could have one whole rock that had the same running surface and striking band. But one of the things that we know is that if the running surface and the striking band have different functions, then uh, necessarily they'll have different properties. So there, there's always going to be that trade-off. So um, I, got, I got a funny story since, since part of what you're looking at is damage profile. Yeah. Um, we actually had, so at Oklahoma Curling Club, we got old, like really old used Blue Hone. Uh, basically bought it off the secondary market where um, the stone supplier had basically taken these as trade-ins from a curling club. Mm -hmm. And then they basically gave them to us because they knew we were going to be arena ice. And their point was your ice quality is so bad, you don't need good stones. And it was cheap. So it helped us get going. And uh, about a month in, I'm not sure if Ryan remembers this, but about a month in, um, I got a text message from one of the leagues, and it's the person saying our stone broke. And I'm like, what? And I thought they, I thought they meant the handle. I'm like, no, the stone just cracked. <laughs> I was like, what have you done? Because I, I didn't like, I've never seen a curling stone break before. We had one other break a little bit after, but then when I messaged the company, they were like, I've never heard of this happening before. They thought we'd done something insane to it. And all of it had been actually a very light um, contact point, right? But the stones have been used for a long period of time. So 
have you, have you in your research kind of found any stories or, or kind of evidence for the for Stones actually at some point just having that kind of failure? And I think that was Bruce Melzer that that broke the rock that we had at Oklahoma Curling Club. So we're blaming Bruce, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard was it Nicholas Abdeen or Thomas Olsner who broke a curling stone <laughs> during practice? Oh wow! Uh, but I've I've never seen a curling stone break, but um, I've I've certainly heard of it, and maybe one day I'll see it happen. But I think. Um, normally with these stones, uh, the reason why they break is that they probably have a larger pre-existing flaw in the stone. I think for such a crack to like completely develop through a stone would be quite difficult, especially one of these curved fractures, because right now we still don't know how far they go, but they probably only go a, maybe a few inches down in, into the, the the stone, maybe like one or two inches. So uh, that's something that I want to look at, but um, I I don't know if it's really due to the um, accumulated damage as opposed to something that may have already uh, been in the rock be- before. So, all right, so your videos are on YouTube and I mean, I'm not sure if Ryan's seen them, but I saw the the main one, which is basically you smashing stones into each other, but using some pretty, <laughs> <laughs> some pretty high-tech cameras to do it. And, and, and like for me, like... Honestly, the two kind of um, most fun parts of curling is the sound of one stone smashing into another and the yelling. That's basically probably why I curl if you, you drill down to it. So your videos are pretty cool, right? So can you kind of explain what you're doing and then what the science is behind it? Yeah, so I think the coolest part about science is that no matter how much you plan something, things always change. So this idea of this the, the, the curling stone videos was actually something that I wasn't planning to it wasn't wasn't in the original plan for my master's and my master's was quite i think it was quite well thought out um so the idea behind this um these videos is that we know that the damage in the curling stone so the this um these crescent shaped fractures but also sort of the the change in the the profile of the striking bands over time we know that that's ultimately due to the collisions right so like curling stones actually hitting each other but we need to know more about what's happening during these collisions. So the speed of the curling stones, what kind of forces or energy or stress happens. So like the context of these impacts. Um, and one of the biggest variables that we can't really measure that well is the contact time of the stones, because that ultimately um, relates to the, uh, the force, right? And, and the acceleration. So if we want to find contact time, well, one of the ways to do that is to basically take pictures of a curling stone at very high speed to see how long uh, they're, in, they're in contact for. And so that's how the high-speed camera came um, into sort of this idea. And we were really lucky because at the University of Edinburgh, um, they actually have a curling... A, sorry. <laughs> at the University of Edinburgh, they actually have a high-speed camera. So uh, I'm very thankful for... Um, Dr. Alan Woolley at the University of Edinburgh, but also Mark Johnson at Slomo for lending their high-speed cameras. And so this is one of the parts of that, that experiment. And then there's other parts, right? So in order to find stress, we need to know the contact area. So we used a few different pressure-sensitive films and also aluminum foil to see how big those contacts are. Because we think of them as point contacts, but they're actually a lot larger than that. They're almost like one centimeter by two centimeter impacts. And then we need to know the speed of the stones, so the GoPros. So we, we mounted GoPros onto this frame 
to also record uh, the speed of the stones before and after the impacts. And we were very lucky to have uh, a pro athlete, uh, Bruce Mowat, to deliver the stones for us. <laughs> oh, cool. I, so what, what rank did you do this at? So we did it at Murrayfield uh, in Edinburgh. And it was really great because, like, I, I mean, I can throw the stones, but I, but I can't throw them that hard and that accurately. And you could get, like, Bruce could just throw them, like, like nine times out of ten, right exactly nose. Uh, we were trying to get them all to be nose impacts to um, not sort of worry about the the angle problems. Um, so it was it was really great to have Bruce there, and um, it, it was great that he donated his time to help us with our, our project or to my with my project. So what we found with this uh, these experiments was that the momentary stress. Um, of those impacts is actually greater than the rock strength of of the rocks, um, and that makes sense because we we also see damage, right? So in order to get damage, we generally have to get above a certain threshold where cracking starts to form, and that's sort of above this uh, this strength threshold. The other thing we found that was really cool, and in hindsight, I probably should have realized, was that um, dust actually comes off the stone. Rock dust comes off the stone, and we can see that the rock dust because they're kind of glittery, right? Mm-hmm. And um, this is important in sort of two different aspects. So uh, in terms of maintenance, we know that the striking band tends to flatten out. So it starts out being convex, and then it slowly flattens and then becomes concave. And when you get concave striking bands, then you need to uh, remaintain or regrind the stones. Otherwise, they start chipping at the, the edges of the striking band. And so... This dust suggests that material is actually being removed from the curling stones, which is why they're flattening out, right? So that's that's cool in, in, in the aspect of how curling stones evolve through time. But another aspect is picking. So the dust goes somewhere. It goes on the ice, right? And so this is another possibility for um, picks and uh, for things basically making the ice uh, not as as pure as it as it should be and there was actually a report in the 2007 briar where um some of the athletes uh, said that the the rocks are powdering everywhere and causing picks everywhere and there was one comment that oh that's a good theory but might it's very difficult to prove but now we have some sort of idea that this is possible for sure so i've actually collected some of this dust uh, for further analysis but uh, the situation with the labs is still a bit unclear, so I don't know when I'm going to analyze that. So would it, um, like, how hard did Bruce have to throw the stone in order to get this dust? Does this happen, like, on every shot? Like, if it's even just a little tap? Or do you have to basically be throwing, like, a five-second hog-to-hog peel to get that kind of dust? So we got Bruce to throw between, like, a sort of hack weight, like, 12 seconds to... Um, like six, six, five, six point yeah. five seconds, um, and I think I only really looked at the the data for this, like the maximum, so the six point five seconds. But I think from before that, you can probably still see the dust. It's just probably less dust that's coming off. Oh, okay. So it's like it's basically just happening all the time. Yeah, it's only because yeah. you have the super slow mo camera uh, that we're able to see. Yeah, see that. And I think the other thing was the lighting. So the light actually. Uh, because with slow motion cameras, we're using very high um, uh, capture time. So there's very short exposure. So we have to use very, very bright lights. 
in order to to actually see um to, to in order to get an image but then this dust it because it's sort of whitish in color it actually reflects the the light really really well so i think that was another um sort of unexpected um result that that made it easier to see the, the dust coming off so i guess the other question we have is so you mentioned at the beginning that um your supervisor thinks this research has application in other areas. So who besides curlers wants to know about uh, what we can learn from smashing rocks together? <laughs> That's great. I should, I should say that for my, to, like a, like a five word summary of my smashing curling stones together. That could be your title. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've got a pun in my title. <laughs> What's what's the title? Uh, where curling collides with rock physics. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's a that's a separate story. So uh, my so I was doing a poster like a poster for a conference, and for my preliminary title, I wrote like "Why do curling stones break?" or something. And my supervisor was like, "That's a boring title," and so I was like, "All right, challenge accepted." So I put a pun in there. <laughs> <laughs> I saw um, a previous previous paper you wrote where you called it curling stones taken for granted, and I mean, as a, as a dad, I appreciate a good a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was for my undergrad. Um, I am working on a a another like a scientific publication for that as well. But going back to your question about the applications, so um, again, the cool thing about geology is that it's all about connections, right? So. One thing that I found about these uh, curve, these crescent sh crescent shaped fractures, is that they're actually very similar to these um, features that you see from glaciers. So when glaciers sort of go over a landscape, we know that they carve like a bunch of rock over and they they basically reshape the landscape, right? Uh, but when you have uh, pebbles that are sort of stuck between this this rock and the glacier. The, the pebbles can actually act as point impacts. And when they're dragged along by the glacier, they also make these very similar curve-shaped fractures, these crescent-shaped fractures. Um, and so we know that, or based on the fact that these, um, these fractures are very, very similar in their shape and, and distribution, we know that they're, they're caused by very similar processes. So this point loading of uh, sort of spherical or round objects so that's one of the applications um, another application is that uh, this sort of goes beyond geology but um, sometimes in things like windshield or glass tests uh, again with like um, point impacts uh, you also see these cone fractures which are very similar to the the fractures that we see in curling stones and possibly even other things like uh, impact structures so there's these uh, geological features called shatter cones so there are these cone-shaped fractures that are usually associated with meteorite impacts. So in Sudbury, where I did my undergrad, you see a lot of them. Um, now they're slightly different in terms of how they form, but they still have the same the same curve uh, conical conical features. So it's sort of interesting to see how they're related to each other in terms of how they how they formed. On more of an industrial level, ultimately we're look we're trying to understand how um, rocks build up damage, more specifically like granite-like rocks. And so when we're looking at construction or mining or nuclear waste storage, that's really about um, 
rocks that are under constant stress, um, which can build up those fractures over time. So we want to mitigate that and prevent that from happening. Of course, in the case of construction, then you get things that like fall down. Uh, in terms of mining, um, so when we're digging a hole into a ground, so the rocks above, um, sort of the rocks underground, will exert a stress on those rocks, which is fine because it's generally in a, a static state, so it's in a, a state that, that, that's balanced. But once you drill a hole into that rock, you all of a sudden have unbalanced stresses. And what can actually ca- occur is these things called rock bursts. So the, the rock can be really stressed on the, the edges of these shafts and then just explode outwards, which is very dangerous. So that's another area of how curling stone impacts more broadly um, can uh, be related to other things. And then, of course, nuclear waste storage is a very similar idea. And, of course, you don't want, um, when you're storing things underground in a rock, you don't want that rock to fracture um, because otherwise it might leak um, nuclear waste. So, so those are some of the, the possible applications of the research that I'm doing. So uh, Megan Balsden, who I think you know, she said she actually mm-hmm. been in contact yep. with you about curling stones. So she's, she's the interview on the first part of this episode. And she was discussing the effect of scratchiness of brush surfaces on the ice and especially how that might affect the curl of stones. So she's looking at kind of ice and the brush interacting, but there's also the question of how the stone running surface interacts. So have you kind of looked at the possible impact of scratchiness of different types of granite on the running surface of the ice? Or have you kind of developed any hypotheses about this? So actually, this um, is something that I've talked to Megan about and something that I would really like to do as a future project, but uh, not as a PhD. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think because we have this baseline of some of the different uh, textures, so really the grain size and the types of minerals, that will ultimately affect um, both the scratching, so like the texturing of the stones, but also how the stones change over time when they're when they're on the curling when when they're on the ice. Now, I think there's sort of two main points that are really important, um, and that's sort of this idea of scratchability versus plucking. So when so when we talk about like the the hardness of a rock. Uh, usually people think about the hardness of the minerals. Um, and when we talk about hardness, that's really about scratchability. So uh, using diamond as an analogy, diamond is a very hard uh, mineral, right? In terms of like, you can't use another mineral to scratch it. It's one of the like, hardest minerals. But if I were to take a diamond and drag it across the ground, it would probably break, right? So it is brittle. Now, the other aspect of... Um, how the running surface plays into this idea of texturing and ice is that it also actually, um, or the the minerals, these grains will actually get plucked or pitted from the um, the running surface at, at a very small scale. And we know that this is the case because ice has a very, very low scratching hardness. So it can't really scratch rock. In fact, what it's probably doing is it's actually probably um, abrading or like removing material by ripping it off these stones. So what we'd be looking for is a rock that not only has um, a hard scratchability so that it can retain the the texture, but also is resistant to the plucking or pitting of the grains. Um, Again, this is something that I haven't looked at, but something that I I do want to look at uh, maybe sometime in the future. (laughs) But it's certainly really, really cool because it plays into a different aspect of the sport, which is the the physics, which um, I think a lot of people are very interested in. It's a very hot topic. And for me, I think 
Um, it's like what I've done with curling. Um, I, I've been very fortunate. Like I've been a player. Uh, I've got I had the opportunity to play in international events. Um, as a coach, I've been able to coach in some some events as a competition development coach, um, and even as an ice tech, it's 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 really great to be able to uh, look at this on a different side, right? And now on research, and so looking at the running surface kind of combines all of that because it has to do with the players, it has to do with how you uh, coach the players in terms of matching rocks and understanding why some rocks behave differently than others. And then, of course, with ice tech, um, that's w- given with ice conditions. Um, and, yeah, it's, I think that's the next part that is unexplored still. Do you have a, a, a preferred curling granite that you're looking for when you're throwing rocks? You know, is, there one, is, is there one that you have a, a particular preference for? Um, so, I mean, I think when, whenever I play, I kind of just sort of zone out of the, the curling stones. Sometimes I'll look at a stone when I, uh, just before I deliver, and I'm like, oh, okay, that's a Blue Trevor stone. <laughs> but I think um, ultimately it has to do with the conditions of the rocks themselves, so between different rock types. Um, I did see, for example, with the old stones at Leeside, especially the, the Blue Trevor ones, um, some of them were very, very slow when we when we tried to flip them over just before uh, just before we we switched them with the new stones. So I think in terms of the rock types themselves, that that's maybe not so important to me. But the condition of the 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 curling stones themselves is probably more important. So let everyone know where where they can read your research and where they can find you uh, on the internet. Basically, you can find me on Twitter at. D underscore rock underscore Liang, um, and also at Explore Minerals. So I'm starting a new sort of series on um, on YouTube on trying to explain uh, rocks and minerals and uh, different geological related concepts uh, to general audiences. So uh, that's under the YouTube channel Minerals Rock, um, and I also have an Instagram page related to that. And and I've write, written a short. Uh, paper, well, a short article on curling stones in the Edinburgh Geologist. So um, for anyone who wants to know more, they they can certainly read that. Um, And yeah, I think that's about it. When when is your master's research going to be published, do you think? Because you said you're hoping to finish up maybe in about four months, five months, something like that. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, a thesis and a publication are sort of uh, separate. So after the thesis comes out, um, it'll be partially getting working towards making that publication or maybe getting the publication before. But I, I don't know when the publication will be out. Um, it's still sort of un- in the works for sure. Someday I'll get Jonathan to explain all that to me. um yeah okay well thanks thanks a lot derek for joining us today we'll when we post the episode we'll tweet out some links to your especially the videos since the video of the rocks being smashed is definitely cool um and uh, also the link to the article too so people can kind of get a sense of of what your research is showing all right so derek 
his research is going to be published at a later date, but he was nice enough to give us some insight into what might be coming. Kind of take us through, Jonathan, you're obviously you're an academic and you've gone through this process before. Tell us about the the process that Derek's going through right now. The master's process or the peer review process? Uh, I, I guess, I guess <laughs> both. both. <laughs> so they're both, they're both uh, painful, very, very painful. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, he's got to write up his, his thesis, his master's thesis, and then he'll submit it to a committee and they'll review it. And, uh, if they approve it, then he'll be awarded a master's. And it sounds like he's also planning to go back to go kind of return to Canada and do a PhD there. So, uh, he'll kind of, he's hoping to continue on with his studies in geology in general. Um, if he wanted to publish it, uh, what you have to do is then submit his thesis or his paper to a journal and it gets, goes through what's called peer review. So the editor, the journal would review it first to see if it kind of fits the journal's topic and kind of meets a minimum threshold for acceptability. And then the editor would select a couple of experts in the field and they would review it to make sure it's uh, factually correct, that the methods are clear, that the data kind of matches up and makes sense, that it's replicable and then also it's an original finding. So it's not kind of re- repeating something that's been found somewhere else. And so if it clears all of those thresholds, then it would be accepted for publication. So when you hear on the news someone talking about a study, sometimes it's it's not a peer-reviewed study. So in kind of the academic world, having gone through that process, that's what makes it considered what we call a valid finding. It doesn't mean it's definitive. Like someone could come along and look at the problem from a different angle or, and perhaps kind of show something else. But the way science actually works, not like I think a lot of people kind of right now are hoping for science, like kind of a magic bullet approach to science where like someone in a lab is going to find the magic formula for COVID and COVID's going to go away. But the way actual science works, it's, it's like dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of papers analyzing a problem from lots of different perspectives and that's how we kind of build up a, a kind of base of knowledge about a problem over time. So in the curling world, you know, as Derek said, there's only a couple of papers that have been written, written about the geology of curling stones. And as Megan said, in her project, there really wasn't much publicly available science about the effect of kind of brushing on the ice surface, right? So it's actually kind of a wide open field. So there's potentially kind of lots of space here for researching curling scientifically, and both Megan and Derek kind of pointed out the ways in which that science might actually translate into to other avenues too. So Jonathan, would you say that we are just now scratching the surface when it comes to studying curling? That's a groan. <laughs> it's a very bad pun, Ryan. That's why I said it. <laughs> Is that what you took away from today is the scratchiness? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, the, literally and, uh, and figuratively. Yeah. And I think that's, that's actually new, right? I don't like, like for me, Broomgate really caught me off guard. So, you know, as I said, I've been curling for years and like up was down, left was right. And I think most competitive players today have a deep understanding of the role that scratching the ice has on how the rock performs. So they're kind of aware of the, the theory now and try to use sweeping techniques that that uh, take advantage of it. 
but again, there's there's still a lot of stuff we don't know about it. That all these new brushing techniques we've seen post Broomgate, a lot of it's still just kind of teams playing around, saying I think it's doing this, I think it's doing that. Like early on in the days of Broomgate, the theory was there was like something called directional fabric, and it just turned out that actually all that was happening is that the you know, brush heads, some brush heads were more abrasive than others. So I think there's a lot we don't know. Um, we certainly know a lot more now than we did kind of pre-Broomgate, but we don't know much about curling stones. And, you know, we don't really know all that much about um, the, the impact of scratching on, on stone behavior. So there's a lot more kind of space for research. So I think Megan's research could definitely, you know, change the way we sweep and change sweeping techniques long term. I think Derek's research, as I kind of like prodding him a bit, there's a good chance that actually there could be lots of different places we could get granite from. And maybe if we kind of build up our knowledge of of granite in general and the features of curling stone granite, it may turn out that there's other kinds of granite out there that might be better for curling stones than the granite we've been using all along. So it might be a, a chance to actually improve uh, the kinds of stones we play with in terms of durability, but also in terms of their sliding surfaces. Using science to improve our sport and improve our knowledge of it. It's, uh, you know, it, a, a lot of things have changed in this sport in the last 10, 20 years. And I think it's going to gonna keep happening is now we've, we've kind of realized that, that, that we can study this sport and, and figure out the science behind some more of the science behind it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we'll, you know, it sounds like there's more from both of them, more, more questions they want to ask. And maybe we'll see other curlers turn scientists, um, kind of develop or attack these problems from different perspectives too. And that'll probably over the long term kind of cycle back into the game itself. So we'll get, um, kind of deeper knowledge about how the game's played. Perhaps it might learn, uh, lead to kind of new, new kinds of equipment, new ice making techniques, new ways to kind of protect and kind of develop curling stones. So there's all kinds of possible applications for curling that could come out of this. All right. Well, uh, I, I feel a lot smarter, but then again, Jonathan, it's not that hard to do. <laughs> all right. I'm glad you, I'm glad you indulged my crazy <laughs> scientific geekery in this episode. I, I, I think if we, if we can't do that, then, then why are we even doing a curling podcast? <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, thanks everybody for listening. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you for listening to rocks across the pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.